Christmas messages. Monday night, we were able to get together with candlelight, um, which was great. I've got a 12-in-1 record for not burning down the church on Christmas Eve. It's kind of exciting when we have the candles out and no, no fires were started. And uh, on Christmas Eve, we kind of looked at peace and also used the book of Isaiah looking forward. And today, I want to kind of just continue on that whole uh, that idea that what's, what's there for peace. And I want to cap the year off um, as we kind of talked about. It's our last service of 2018. And wow, it's, we've had some issues this morning, so I'm very excited that this all works. It's, uh, Christ never used PowerPoint at the Sermon on the Mount, and there's a reason for that. Um, we're going we're gonna to try some of this. Uh, wow, and everything's slightly, okay, interesting. So if you were in Washington, D.C. the last week or two, you would find um, National Cathedral. It's by far the best-looking church building ever built. It's an old-school cathedral, but it's new, so it's clean. Um, and they projected onto the front of National Cathedral this beautiful image of the cosmos. Why they did that, and a lot of people didn't understand that. And if you follow me on Facebook or if you were here Christmas Eve, you might have an idea why they did that. And that was to remind us of something that took place 50 years ago on Christmas Eve, 1968. And Christmas Eve is a good time to look back, look forward, to talk about things. Here we are at the end of the year, kind of thinking back on things. And I have, was trained as a historian, and uh, sometimes it's, it's hard to get away from that a little bit, and that's okay. Peace is what we talked about Christmas Eve, and peace is what I want to talk about tonight, this morning. <laughs> it's been that kind of day. Um, we don't live in a very peaceful world. We don't have a very peaceful country, and a lot of us personally might not have peace. Uh, right now, globally, there are five armed conflicts going on where in 2018, there was over 10,000 casualties each. Mexico, Yemen, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. All over 10,000 casualties this year. There are additionally 15 other armed conflicts where there is up to 9,900 casualties. In addition to that, there are 41 other conflicts where there's been at least 1,000 casualties. That's 61. 61 wars going on right now, today. We do not have peace globally. Politically, we are stuck with the left versus the right, the young versus the old, the Trump versus... Take your pick, and we fight. We disrespect one another. We have news stations, which are completely partisan, which is a form of lying. And we think that's normal. We argue. It's partisan. We look down on those who disagree with us, and we ridicule compromise, even though compromise is literally the foundation of the form of government we enjoy. The Constitution is based on it, and yet we denigrate that. We have no peace nationally or politically. Personally, we have some issues in America. We have some health problems nationally. We have strife. We have arguments. We question truth. We disparage science. We ridicule the upright and the righteous. We have no peace personally. Now, it's been worse. I don't know if you remember an election a few years ago where 11 states rebelled against the United States and formed their own country and went to war with the United States. That was a little worse. 
but the 1860s are a long time from now. We'll set the Wayback Machine a little closer. 1968, 50 years ago. Some of us were alive, although barely. Some of you might not have been. Some of you remember 1968 very well. Uh, 1968 was a bad year, way worse than 2018. In 1968, we were in the middle of the Vietnam War, and there were protests. There were millions of people showing up for protest rallies, yelling, screaming. There was burnings. There was vandalism. There was destruction. It was bad. In the Vietnam War, 1968 was the high point. Things were in the early part of 1968. There were promises made. This is it. This will be the last year of the war. Everything looks good. And then there was a thing called the Tet Offensive in late January of 1968. And it was a disaster for the United States of America. The USS Pueblo, probably don't remember this one. U.S. Navy ship was seized off the coast of North Korea. Eighty sailors were captured and tortured. One died. Uh, virtually no response. It was a very complex situation, but they were held for over a year. Very humiliating for the United States. In April, a Baptist minister was assassinated for saying we should all be nicer to one another. Following that, riots. Watts, Philadelphia, Detroit, entire neighborhoods were burned. A neighborhood burned to the ground. Later on, in June, front-running candidate for president, whose platform was basically we should all be nicer to one another, was also assassinated. In August, Chicago held a political convention where everybody comes together to pick a new candidate, kind of a sign of unity. What happened were protests, riots, violence, and probably the ugliest Americans can get. Ugly by the police, ugly by the protesters, ugly by the candidates, ugly, 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 all the way around, all on live TV. Washington, D.C. had protests where they had to put the army on the streets of our nation's capital and institute martial law in the nation's capital. Small towns across America had violence and burnings. National Guard troops were put out all over the place across the country because the police departments were overwhelmed with how many people were mad and protesting or just going outside to cause trouble. I think it's not a stretch of the imagination to say outside of the Civil War, 1968 was one of the worst years for the United States of America. But then something happened at the end of the year. Horrible year. At the very end of the year, three Americans provided an example that points towards a solution to this. That I think is an example we can learn from. And again, you're not going to be surprised if you follow me on Facebook. But on the Christmas Eve of 1968, something remarkable was happening that people paid attention to. And that was the space program. We were in a race to get to the moon. And on Christmas Eve, these three men, Bill Anders, Jim Lovell, and Frank Borman, were the first humans to go into orbit around the moon. They didn't land, but they slowed down and they stayed in orbit around the moon, and they went into orbit on Christmas Eve, 1968. Now, a lot of people followed the space program, and they were told, we're going to do a live broadcast from the moon on Christmas Eve, and astronauts, these three test pilots, they told them, more people are going to listen to you than probably have listened to any broadcast in the history of mankind. And that was true. 
more people would tune into this Christmas Eve live TV from the moon than watch the Super Bowl, than listen to Billy Graham, than listen to any of the wartime radio broadcasts. It would be the biggest audience in the history of mankind to a single broadcast. And NASA's instructions to these three highly competitive test pilots was simple. They said, say something appropriate. That was it. And I don't know if you know military guys that are pilots, but they're, you know, they're not real generally artistic type people. And they struggled with it. What do we say? What do we not say? Do we do something funny? And they, the closest they came up, they're going to change the words to um, the Christmas Santa Claus was the night before Christmas and all through the house. They're going to do that poem like except with space program stuff. And then they had a different idea. On Christmas Eve, at the end of this terrible, terrible year, the three pilots at 7.34 Pacific Standard Time, this is what we all tuned in and heard. Oh, sorry. They took this picture, too. <laughs> First picture of our planet. It's the most downloaded and most recorded. There we go. Thank you. Sir. This is what people heard. Now approaching uh, lunar sunrise. And uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light. That it was good. And divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a movement in the midst of the waters. And let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the movement. And divided the waters which were under the movement from the waters which were above the movement. And it was so. And God called the movement heaven. And the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. Now, it would be nice to think that everything changed after that message. But the NASA people in Houston, they had no idea they were going to read from Genesis. No one did except for the three crew. But things did change a little bit. The next week, there were signs in New York City about unity Construction workers were seen hugging hippies, which was unheard of at that time. And there were thousands, tens of thousands of telegrams, which were kind of like an email in the old days, that were sent to NASA and were sent to the pilots. And they, they read some of them to the crew on their way back home. 
Um, one of the, the telegrams is worth noting was from Charles Lindbergh. Can you imagine being a pilot and getting a personal telegram from Charles Lindbergh saying, good job, guys? But one telegram stood out. It was a random lady. I could give you the name, but you wouldn't recognize it. It was just a, a person who sent it, and NASA spotted it. And it was a very simple telegram. It simply said, you have saved 1968. Now, why is that important to go back to Genesis? Why is that such a great example for when I'm talking about peace and extending peace? And what does it have to do with the sermon anyway, other than, boy, that was nicely read from the Bible? Well, it was carefully chosen, and here's why. We're going to go through that today. And in fact, our question... Okay, well, we're not going to have PowerPoint for the rest of the day, and that's okay. Not a problem. Our central question, if you're taking notes, you can follow along in the notes. But what we have is whenever we want to, we want to ask a question, the central question is, what do we do as Christians about a bad year? When we have a bad year, what do we, how do we respond to that as Christians? That's a question I ask myself a lot because there's a lot of bad things around us. And the answer is very simple. It's three words. We remember, we understand, and we share. Remember, understand, and share. The scripture we're going to use to draw out that answer to the central question is found in John chapter 19, verse 30. It's a, this is a, a one-verse sermon. Let me read that to you. Uh, John chapter 19. This is the crucifixion story, which also was a pretty bad year. Therefore... When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Holy Father, we pray to you again as a church that uh, you would illuminate your word to us, that your Holy Spirit would speak through me, would speak into our hearts, and that, Father, any of the deficiencies of my studies or the distractions of this morning uh, would be washed away by you, by your Holy Word, by your Holy Spirit, and that each one of us would receive from you the gift from your word that we need. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to take a look at a piece of John today. Really, we're going to look at one word. A little context about the book of John. We're in the Gospel of John. John was written by a guy named John. Uh, John was the apostle who, quote, Jesus loved. He was a fisherman. Uh, He stopped catching one kind of fish and started going to catch other kinds of fish. The book was written around 85 Although there's a big debate right now with scholars. They think it might have been written as early as 50. It's an interesting debate, but not really relevant as far as I could tell. I mean, if you're into that, that's great. I'm glad there's people that care about that sort of thing. But what John is focused on as a book was on the deity of Jesus Christ. That There's books that focus on God's humanity. There's books focused on the miracles of God. John focused on Christ as the Son of God. Uh, The key verse in the book of John you're probably familiar with, chapter 3, verse 16, comes out quite a bit. It's a good one. Um, And it also has some message about how to to deal with a bad year. If you're taking notes and you're following along in the notes, we're kind of at part one, which is a little bit of context also for John, because the book of John opens up with the same thing that the astronauts pick. How do you start dealing with that? And they start with the very beginning. And the first thing we need to remember is how it all started. And for that, you can back and go back. Erica read it for us. The first 
verse of John deals with the beginning also. It's like a little summary of Genesis. In the beginning was God, and the, the Word was God, and there was darkness. It's important for us to remember, before you can do anything else to deal with a bad year, remember everything you see, everything you touch, everything that exists, the matter, the molecules, the energy around you was created. It's not random. There's no, it's, it's perfectly created. It was created by a creator in a very personal way. And that's what Genesis 1 talks about. That's what the first first verses of John talked about. When John talks about this, he starts with the beginning, that God created. And it's easy to forget that fundamental truth sometimes. We tend to think of ourselves as a little more important than we really are. But God did it. God created it. Remember that. Secondly, you want to remember that the world was dark. God built it a certain process that the world is dark. We shouldn't expect it to be any different than that. And so don't get mad about the darkness around you. The darkness does not understand you. The darkness does not understand light. Don't look down on the people that don't have Jesus Christ, that are acting out in a, in a, a way that's against God. That's normal. God knows about it. He's not surprised by it. The darkness, don't have the light, you're going to act weird. So, you know, don't look down on science for trying to put math to creation. Don't look down on the people that are being very mean-spirited to one another that don't have Jesus Christ in their life. They, they don't have a way to understand it. We need to bring the light to them so they can understand it. So that's important. Um, S. Lewis Johnson, the great theologian, Gary quoted him a couple weeks ago, but he gave a sermon on Genesis 1, and he said that you start here at Genesis, at creation, because it's the basis for all that comes next, and it is the context for Christ coming to earth. If you understand that it was created and there's a purpose behind it, then it makes sense that Christ would come to redeem us in it. Don't forget that it's created. Also don't forget that God's still in control of it. There are people who believe that God kind of wound up the universe like a watch and then let it go free and it just kind of follows its own thing. God's in control of it still. He is the creator God Everything is following God's plan. There is a holy plan at work in it. Romans 8.28 is one verse that we tend to go back to. The point of that, though, is don't forget about that, but also don't make yourself the center of the story. Sometimes we think that, well, God's holy plan is for me to be happy. Probably not. Probably not. The reason things are happening might not be for you. It might not be about, in fact, it probably is not about you. When I read scripture, sometimes I make myself the star of the show. I read Romans 8, 28, and it's, well, God wants to work everything out for me. It doesn't say that, okay? I might be going through suffering so that somebody else is being worked out for them or for a whole bunch of people or for something else that it's so much bigger. God's plan is so much bigger than we can grasp. And you know what? You don't have to grasp it all. You have to just have a little bit of faith and a little bit of understanding that God is in control and that his plan, while sometimes perplexing to us, sometimes confusing, sometimes what seems to be incredibly harmful to us even, is a perfect plan. And it is a plan based on love. And that in the end, it will all work out. In the end, it will be good. We just don't have the perspective to see it sometimes. Scripture is for us, but it's not about us. 
Scripture's written for our good, but it's not necessarily written to us. But there's a plan, and it's a good plan. And if God created it, God's still using it, then what we see around us is nothing of a surprise to God, and none of it's by chance. None of it's an accident. None of it's happenstance, which is all the context you need for what we roll into verse 30 of chapter 19 of the book of John. One sentence. In fact, we're going to look at just one word in that one sentence. And this is the understanding part. This is the meat of what I want to talk about. You remember God's in control. God created it. God's still in control. It's a good plan. But the second thing we've got to do is understand. What we need to understand is our salvation. Christ's final words on the planet Earth were, it is finished, which is what we need to understand. First off, the word it is finished is actually one word in Greek, which was what this John wrote in. And then the word is roughly telkelestai. It's a single word, and it's a pretty common word in the Bible, and that's what we need to dig into today a little bit. This one-word phrase in your Bible might have be uh, translated not as it is finished. Your word might say uh, everything is done. Uh, your translation might say it is fulfilled, might say it is completed. If you're using the Latin Vulgate edition of the Bible, which I know a bunch of you do, Latin Vulgate's still pretty popular, uh, it says consummatum est, or it is consummated. John picked this word very carefully, John being the author with the Holy Spirit. That word was selected, teltelestai, the Greek word, and it's a commercial word in general. What it means is paid in full. Well, that's one of the meanings. It's used as completely paid for. It might mean... I uh, got used as a contract. If you fulfilled your contract, they would write teltelestai in the bottom of it. If you followed your orders perfectly, it would say teltelestai. It is finished. Um, it was also used to describe something that was perfect, whole, complete, would be teltelestai. The most common usage was in paying a debt. If you owed somebody money, you paid the bill, they'd write teltelestai in the bottom of it. Those of you that have an aversion to grammar, look away right now. The grammar of this word, it's the perfect tense. You might be saying, I, I'm not familiar with that. Past, present, future, right? Well, Greek, they have some more tenses. They're pretty cool. Perfect tense is really neat. What it means is that something happened in the past fully, but the effect of it goes on to the future still. It happened back there, but the impact is still going on today. That's perfect tense. That's kind of cool. That puts a lot of meaning in a word when you know it's perfect tense. Something that happened back then, but we still feel the impact of today. Gosh, what could we be talking about? Hmm. Interesting. It's the most important word in the Bible, I think, for you to understand, for me to understand. For me, this was the most important word to understand about the Bible. It is finished, what Christ did. Warren Wiersbe, who's a pretty popular writer, pretty great theologian, he said of the word teltelestai, Shepherds and priests used it when they found a perfect sheep that was ready for sacrifice. Christ died as the perfect lamb of God. Servants, when their work was completed, would use this word when reporting to their masters. Christ, the obedient servant, had finished the work that the Father gave him to do. Christ willingly and deliberately gave up his life. He laid down his life for his friends. On Easter... We focus on the end of Christ's physical life on earth. And if you're like me, you might have focused a little bit on the, the physical suffering of Jesus, the whips, 
the crown of thorns, carrying a cross, hanging on a cross. And if you're like me, you're kind of dumb. No offense. But I was pretty dumb about this. I focused on the physical suffering. And the reason that that's dumb is this. It leads you to the wrong impression of how Christ said, Telestai. When Christ said it is finished, if you focus on the physical, you think he said it as relief. Oh, it's finished. Oh, that was hard. And you miss out on what it, how it was said and how it was meant. It's not relief. It's the shout of a victor. He completed the task. He beat death. Christ defeated Satan at the cross. And Telestai is the warrior's cry. It's, I won. It's shouted. And it comes out that way. And not that there wasn't physical suffering. That's important. But it is secondary to what was done on our behalf. That we are freed because of Christ's great sacrifice. That our debt was paid in full. And when I say we need to understand our salvation, that's what we need to understand. That it was so deep, so complete, so perfect. There's nothing left to do. It happened, and yet the impact still goes on today. Sitting around you right now, sitting around you at work, no doubt there are people who don't fully understand that. There's a lot of money to be made in getting you to buy books that say you don't understand that. You need to do something for your salvation. That you need to be about this. You need to be about that. That you, you, you don't have assurance. A lot of people believe that. And if you do, you have no peace. On the back of your notes, Grace Point doesn't like to surprise anybody. We like to have things written down for you. And on the back of your notes is our doctrinal statement, part of our church constitution, about what we believe. And what we believe about your salvation, we wrote it all down. There's lots of references there. You've probably, if you've been around, you've seen that before, and you may have even read it before. I would encourage you to read it again. The references in there are great. They'll take you through everything. Let me summarize it right now. Okay? Two points, following your notes. First, only Christ can atone for your sin, your justification. And yes, I'll be walking back and forth shortly about the tenses of salvation. Didn't want to disappoint anybody. That's a bit of a thing for me. But when Christ did it all, he fully did it all. The word leaves no doubt that you cannot save yourself. If you have sin, which you do, and I do, and everyone does, you can't save yourself. Romans is very clear. No one is free from sin. Everybody has sin. 3.10, Romans 3.10. It's impossible for you to save yourself. 1 Peter 1. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Only Christ can save you. Only Christ. Secondly, your justification, your salvation, was fully complete. The word leaves no doubt. There's nothing left for you to do. There's no future act. There's no thing you need to do in the future. It's already been done. John, again, chapter 5, this is John speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but it's passed out of death into life. Christ did it all. Only Christ. He did it completely. <clears throat> Third, your justification was permanent. It was fully accomplished. The word leaves no doubt. 
People cannot lose your salvation. Now, people believe that, but they're wrong. That's something I'll go to the cross for. That's, that's a hill I'm willing to die upon, that your salvation is permanent. If you believe in him, as it says in John chapter 3, verse 16, then you are saved, period. Nothing less to do. There's nothing you can do to undo that. Theodore Spurgeon, another great theologian, our justification is not partial. We are entirely free. Let's go to the horse's mouth, though. In John chapter 10, Christ speaks, speaking about salvation. Jesus is speaking, words of God. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one includes you, right? If you are saved, there is nothing you can do to lose your salvation. Nothing. If you believe that, you are disagreeing with the words of Jesus Christ. You're disagreeing with a lot of scripture. When Christ said it is finished, it was finished. Completely. It's important that you understand that. Because if you don't understand that, you don't understand your salvation. People who don't understand that completely, they feel like they have to do something still. They feel like they have to be about doing some. They have to be about doing good works to be saved. And they'll have no peace because they're still trying to work. They'll feel like there's something they have left to do. And they'll be fearful. What if I don't do it? And more probably just than it kind of concerns me is people worry that they can lose their eternal life. You are not going to have peace not knowing if you're saved or not. If you go about your day-to-day life worried that you're going to go to hell when you die for all eternity... I can't imagine a less peaceful way to go through life. Now, there are things to worry about in life. It has to do with your three tenses of salvation. You know, I'm Tobin, I know, is laughing because I'm standing over on this side of the church. Your salvation has three parts. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification happened in the past. That's when you believed. That's what Christ died. Teltelestai deals with justification. That ends the debate on whether you're, where you're going to go for eternity. If you've been justified with God, that's what I'm talking about. Permanently saved, fully saved, completely saved, nothing left to do. Justified, 100%, it is finished. Now, down the road, way over here, you're going to be glorified. That's when you're in heaven. That's a pretty exciting part of salvation. Looking forward to that part. But in between, there's this middle thing. For me, I believed when I was about 14. I was justified when I was 14. I'm going to be glorified 10 minutes from now, 10 years from now. We don't know. Not worried about that. But in the mental part, sanctification, this is about maturing in Christ. That's worth worrying about because that's the decisions I make every day. Am I going to be more like Jesus Christ? Am I going to try to be more conformed to the image of God? And that takes willpower. And that's not very easy, I find. I don't know. Some people, maybe it's easy. I don't think so. Sanctification is worth worrying about. It has nothing to do with being justified, though. Because justification means I've got an end point that I know that is secure, is permanent, and cannot be taken away even by something I do. I can't lose my salvation. <clears throat> I work with a lot of people. And some of them are angry. 
not the people I work with, but the people I come into contact with. And I've found that the more angry a person is, the less peace they have in their life. That can be Christians. That can be non-Christians. If you don't have peace, I believe personally, through this study, it's because you don't understand your salvation. And you could be sitting, I'm talking to you. This is not written here for the benefit of non-Christians, although I think there's some pretty good bits in here. It's good to be saved. It's written for us. This is written for us because we're the ones that are sharing the gospel, which is the third part of this whole message today. You remember God's in control. You understand your salvation, and then you share it. Christmas Eve, we talked about peace. We use the image of the Christ candle as the light coming into the world, and then we share the light. And the ushers would go down the thing, we'd share the light, and the light would grow. And if you stand where I do on Christmas Eve, it's the most beautiful thing you can imagine of seeing the candles continue to grow as the light is shared. When I deal with people who aren't peaceable, it's, I think it comes back to that. If you don't have salvation, if you don't understand how fully saved you are, you're going to get weird. It just is. Okay, If you don't have peace in your heart, you act out in kind of odd ways. Now, it mostly comes out as anger. Um, it comes out as fighting. It comes out in a lot of different ways. And I put a really simply way to look at this is this. If an asteroid were to strike this church building right now, and we all end up instantly in front of God. And God says, why should you come into heaven? How would you answer that? Would you trust in your works? Would you say, well, I donated this. I helped build this. I painted the, the, the shop outs for the church. I did all these great things. I did, I did, I did, I did. I posted a ton of memes on Facebook that had the cross on it. Come on. That's, that's worth a lot. Or do you simply point at Jesus Christ and say, he paid. He paid it. I don't know if you've been in Gary's office. He has this little bookmark thing. It's a, I don't know what it is, the thing on his desk. It's art, I guess. But it's a cross. I'm not making fun of this because it's pretty powerful, actually. It's a cross, and it has a bloody handprint on it, and it says, paid in full. That's a good reminder of if, when I, if that's how it works in heaven. You show up, and somebody says, what's your, what'd you do? Did you get in or not? You point at Jesus Christ. You point at the cross. Well, the cross won't be there. You point at Jesus Christ and say, that guy paid everything for me. People who don't understand that, they think they've got to do something. They've got to work for their salvation still. They think they get sanctification and justification all mixed up together. When I was in the hospital for quite a bit of time back a few years ago, I got to deal with a lot of people who were panicked about where they were going to end up. Because when you're in a hospital, I mean... The end looks a lot closer there. And people start to freak out a little. When you talk about weird behavior, there's a lot of weird behavior. And you can divide the people. Oh, you have peace. You're okay. You're going to die. But you have peace about it. It's okay. You know where you're going to end up. So, here we are at the end of 2018. And the world stinks. Yep. No doubt about it. It stinks now. It has stunk before. It's a dark world. The world's not supposed to be great. It doesn't have Jesus in it. We're the ones sharing that with people. And there have been worse years. If you've been around for a while, you've heard the story in 1914 was a pretty bad year. But it ended on a good note. 
In the middle of the, the start of the war to end all wars, there was a truce at Christmas, and soldiers sang the one song they all knew, which was Silent Night. It ended on a good note. In B.C. 1, think about B.C. 1, one year before Christ. And 400 years since a prophet spoke. You might be a believer sitting there going, where's God? Where's the sun? That year ended on a pretty good note, though. Unless it, does that be zero or would that be one? I, I get that confused in my head. But the year before Christ was born would have been a pretty bad year, but it ended on a nice note. Imagine 33 or so A.D., the year that Christ was crucified. The, year, the time between when he died and when he rose again. That was a pretty bad time. But it ended on a good note. And in 1968, this horrible year where everything was screwed up and bad and protesting, it ended on a good note by three American astronauts reminding us that God's in control. And if we understand our salvation, then we're able to share something. And I would argue sharing the gospel is pretty good for you too. The act of leading somebody to Christ the act of just speaking about Jesus Christ, I think will give you a different sense of peace in your own life. It's good. And it creates good. It creates peace. Share the peace that you have. So how do we end a bad year? We remember, we understand, and we share. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again for this time that we had to be in your word that you give us your word in a language we can understand, that all of us can have your word in front of us and that we don't rely on any one person as a conduit. That, Father, you speak to each one of us directly, that your Holy Spirit is given to each one of us personally, and that you are our God and we are your children. And, Father, it is our privilege to stand before you this morning and worship you because you deserve our worship. You deserve our worship because you are holy, because you are good, you are just, and you saved each one of us that have believed here. And Father, so as we close out this 2018, as we close out this time of worship, we want to end it in worship of you. And Father, we just pray this morning that our worship of you would be empowered by your Holy Spirit, that we would do it in spirit and truth. And that, Father, we'd be reflecting on the great love you have for us. That when your son came and declared it is finished as the victor, that's why we worship you this morning. We ask this in the name of that son, our Savior, Jesus Christ Almighty. Amen.